over the uh, past few weeks, we've been looking at a few of the psalms that are found in a grouping of the psalms that are known as Psalms or Psalms of Ascent. As we have seen before, these are, are psalms associated with pilgrimages taken by Jewish travelers on their way to the feast day celebrated in Jerusalem. They were psalms likely sung by the travelers as they would enter into the holy city ascending from the plains and on their way up to the tabernacle or later to the temple. And if you can imagine that scene, what it would be like, you would understand that it would include people representing the differing tribes of Israel, 12 of them, all who had come from a common lineage, the Abraham, the Isaac, and the Jacob, Jacob being the forefather whose name was changed by God to Israel, and who was the father of the sons and the brothers who had become the covenantal heads of the tribes. Despite that common lineage, the tribes as history went on weren't always so unified. In fact, after King David and after his son King Solomon died, there was no longer a unified Jewish nation but a divided one. Two nations with two capital cities with differing centers for worship. But still, even in spite of that division, the city of Jerusalem still had a special place. The temple in Jerusalem was still the one central place for the gathering of all the Jewish people to worship this one, and especially on those feast days that I mentioned. And so it was almost as if the division of the national people and the familial people of Israel would have taken a back seat when all these people of common ancestry would once again enter the city gates in celebration of God's work as they were gathered together in the worship of God. I would ask you to try to keep that image somewhat in your minds as we read this short psalm, Psalm 133. Let's pray before we read it. Father in heaven, we once again come to your word and we cherish it so much that we realize it, realize it is food to us, that it teaches us. But we also understand, Lord, that oftentimes we need your help because we come to images that might be unclear, so we need your wisdom found in your scripture and found by your spirit. We need to understand rightly what you would have us know, and so Lord, as we read this psalm, we ask that you would bring the truths that are within it into our hearts and our lives. And by doing that, Lord, we pray that we would be changed to be a people who are more in tune with you and more united with our life. So, Lord, we ask that you would work on our hearts as we read this song and as we hear it preached, that by that you would be honored. Christ name we pray. So, again, this is... Uh, Psalm 133, it's a psalm of ascents, a song of ascents, a psalm of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell with you. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of hermit, which falls on the mountains of Zion. There the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Grass withers, flowers fade, but as always, the Lord God's 
Well, as I said, Psalm 133 really is a short psalm. And it also has a simple, recognizable structure. It begins with a single propositional statement. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That proposition about the goodness of the unity of brothers is followed by two illustrative examples to give us a better picture of just how good and pleasant then the illustrations, the illustrative examples are followed by a final sentence which suggests how it is that the Lord God desires this life and has commanded the blessing of life forevermore in such a place where this beautiful world exists. So that's the simple structure to the short song. And the proposition about the pleasantness of unity doesn't really need much to explain a little more the idyllic nature of this unity, a little more closely, what I'll do tonight is to take the illustrations for us. And then once we have a better understanding of these illustrations, we will think more about the unity God desires among his people in general and how the psalm then informs the church of Jesus Christ today about the unity of For people like us, people who are so distant geographically from Jerusalem and so distant in time as well from the more ancient era when the Psalms were written. These illustrations don't really make a great deal of sense in regard to the sense of goodness and brotherhood unity which they are trying to convey. The first illustration describes this good and pleasant unity as being like the precious oil on the head of Aaron running down upon his beard and running further down to the collar of his robes. I am right, am I? That's really not an understandable image for people up today. In fact, I imagine we don't attribute much pleasantness at all to any thought of oil on a head, running down upon a beard, much less having that oil then fall upon what's collar, so it's destroyed on one's robes. But the right understanding of the image begins with the knowledge that Aaron, who Aaron was referenced here, would be Moses' brother, who was the first high priest of all Israel. As the first high priest, we learn from the scriptures that it was the directive of God that he and his sons would be consecrated. They would be set apart, and they would be ordained for their role as priests. And the ceremony of consecration or ordination involved an anointing an anointing with oil according to the direction of God. I want to read to you what we find in Exodus chapter 29 in this regard. A chapter, a chapter that begins with God saying, Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve as priests. And skipping down just a little further down to verse 4 and reading through verse 9 of Exodus 29, we find this. You shall bring Aaron, these are God's words. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent, of meeting, and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod, and the ephod, and the breastpiece, and gird him with the skillfully woven band of ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and 
poured it on his head and anointed him. Then he shall bring his sons and put coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statue forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So the oil that is being placed on the head is for this anointing. And according to our psalm, the oil is being poured upon the head of Aaron with a sufficient quantity that it would run down its face upon his beard and then upon the and again, for our purpose, the purpose of our understanding of the psalm, the anointing oil is for this consecration, this setting apart. Aaron is being ordained. He is being set apart in the service of God as a priest. And it's important for us to also know that the high priest was the one who would offer a sacrifice on behalf of all the people, all of the tribes, all of the brothers, so that sin he was the one who would do that atoning act and he would pray for the salvation of God. Especially in relation to our song, it might also be worth our knowing that the breastplate of Aaron's priestly garments that I read about in Exodus 29, well, on that breastplate, there were 12 stones. 12 stones representing the 12 tribes, representing the 12 brothers. The copious amount of oils would more than likely be falling down on the breastplate and on those stones. And likely leaving the original readers or the original singers of this song of ascent with a reminder that the atoning sacrifice offered by the priest were for a unified people, for a unified band of brothers in all the all the people of the covenant in unity were forgiven by their sins with the atoning sacrifice offered by the high priest. The high priest was consecrated with the oil of God. So that image is to be in mind as an image that would inform our understanding of this good and blessed condition of brothers of the unity. Reconciled to God to an atoning sacrifice, brothers should possess as well, a unity among the people as part of their unified stance before God. Status. Well, then the second image is given. And it's given again for this illustrative purpose, telling us about the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, our ability to understand this illustration is helped by our having some geographical and topographical information, and maybe even some climate knowledge about the region of Palestine. We're also able to add if we have a little bit of a little imagination. You see, geographically, we are helped by knowing that in the region of Palestine, Mount Hermon, which is referenced, would be far in the north, even north of the Sea of Galilee, north and over the east. And thus, it was a far distance from Mount Zion, the other mountain. Topographically, Mount Hermon was still was and still is one of the tallest mountains in all that region. I imagine most of us here don't think of snow in the Palestine. But Mount Hermon is often snowed because it stands nearly 10,000 feet above sea level. In our present times, the 
actually go to Mount go speak. Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is located, is much further south and not nearly so high. In fact, we probably would not even count Mount Zion the amount at all. It stands just a little above 2,500. Now, as to climate, Jerusalem and Mount Zion are in a, a drier region. But Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon is often, even in the hottest heat of the summer, quite green. Green because the humidity there makes it so that there is this constant morning dew, this copious dewfall, which covers the ground with, with an ample amount of water. But now we need that imagination. Imagination, because what the psalmist is envisioning is a time unlike anything that would have been known in Israel before or in our day. A time when he imagines that those dews of Hermon, Mount Hermon, are so abundant, so copious, that they are actually flowing strong, so they would flow down to the mountain, flow miles, and reach Mount Zion, or to be Jerusalem. So these two metaphorical illustrations are expressing the unity that is desired among the families of God, among his brothers, his tribes. It would be a unity that would match the pleasantness and refreshing nature when a parched land is refreshed abundantly by an abundant dewfall from a high mountain to a much lower and distant region. And as good and pleasant as the rich consecrated oil lavished upon the head of a high priest so as to make the worship of the people of God sweet to their Lord. That's the type of people who desire God is a church. And then the closing words of the psalm say, For there the Lord has commanded the blessing of God forevermore. Now that could be understood with slightly different nuances depending on where there is. If there is specifically referring to Mount Zion, God's blessing, which is life forevermore, is more directly being linked to that place, to Mount Zion or to Jerusalem, a place where the brothers on this pilgrimage, these tribes on this pilgrimage, are entering into the show But there could also be a meaning instead that doesn't find there as being any particular place other than a place where the unity of the people of God is being laid down. Now I really don't know from reading this text where there really is. But I also don't think it really makes all that much of a difference. Perhaps it does if we're thinking now of heavenly Zion, heavenly, the heavenly city of Jerusalem where there is a pleasant and good unity among all the families of the world at all times. That becomes the rule of the day. But short of that glorious place, this pleasantness and goodness of brothers and sisters dwelling in unity is a goal we should always strive When we read, when we read rather, our New Testament reading for tonight from Ephesians 4, the passage there told us that seeking unity is part of what should characterize the church. Unity should be something sought out. We are instructed there in Ephesians to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit of God. We should also see in that passage that this desire for unity among the people of God is something that really should be innately a part of what it means to be Christian. 
called him out as part of Ephesians, wrote about this eagerness for unity. He began by reminding his readers that they should be walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which they had called. So that the manner of walking worthily, at least in part, is to have this eager desire to see a unity of believers. So we've seen from David's writing about a song, about the beauty of humility, uh, a unity that has that could be seen in the Old Testament church. And then we see Paul encouraging unity also among the New Testament church. And we should be so thankful that we've reached the point now where unity has become second nature in the of God. Just kidding. Researchers tend to place the total number of denominations worldwide which can identify themselves as Christian as being 20 to 30,000. In the United States, there is a national organization of evangelical churches that has a membership of over 60. And please understand that by limiting the membership of this organization to only evangelical churches, Really, only a small fraction of the denominations in the United States are actually represented by that number. I'd like to be able to say to you that we who are Presbyterian fare far better. But as on occasion I have reminded people, there are so many different Presbyterian denominations in the United States that together all the Presbyterian churches have been sometimes described as being a PCA, OPC, AR, EPC, RCPNA, if you gave me a little more time, I can And we should even be aware, I think, that in a local church, we also often fail in our eagerness to maintain the unity that we should have as We will remain in unity with others so long as the sanctuary is adorned in God. Where I hear sermons preached the way I like them preached, or we sing the songs I like to sing. What should we do that unity that is so desirable to adorn the church, what should we do to maintain it or revive it? Well, one thing I think we should learn from the song directly is that we should understand that God has a desire for us to be united. By telling us that unity in the church is just a beautiful thing, a beautiful attribute, an attribute that blesses, we are being told that this is something that we should see, that we should maintain. And we're helped as well simply by seeing that this is desired by God and that He sees our oneness is, as this beautiful attribute. And if we see it the same way that he does, won't we strive for it all the more? Won't we strive for it? And when Paul writes of the unity of the church in Ephesians, we, we read there and he emphasizes our own attitudes. And see we should be humble. We should be gentle. We must be patient in order to be unity among the church. We must bear with one another in love. Think about that. It's highly unlikely that this 
community would ever reign if every person in every church is acting with humility, gentleness, patience, and loving maintain such a unity, though I would also have to say, means that we have to see that there is a standard for unity. In the psalmist stated, I think, but maybe a bit subtle, when the psalmist uses the illustration of the oil on Aaron's head and the beard and the garment, it drew us attention to God's word for the appointment and the ordination of the Old Testament high priest. And that then also draws our attention as more modern Christians to the final and great Christ. We also saw at the end of the psalm that there was the blessing of life everlasting being associated with the very command of God. And that might draw us to think about how God does that. The point I'm trying to make is that the unity of the church will never be maintained well if we merely tolerate every unbiblical diversity of It is found and it is maintained when we seek to conform our wills to the will of God. When the Apostle Paul also addresses this same sort of unity of believers in Philippians chapter 2, he instructs us there that we are to be of the same mind, we are to have the same love, we are to be in full accord with but very soon after he says that, he moves a little further in chapter 2 to begin verse 4, which is really a start of a great statement about who Christ is. He starts that part with a reminder to us that we should have a mind like Jesus, a life like Jesus. The point I hope you see is that our humility will, or death will, in fact, direct us to understanding following and fallible creatures who might well err in regard to rightly understanding what God desires. But the more we seek to follow God, the more we do conform our thoughts after God's thoughts, the more our unity will start to become something. Because we will find ourselves in one accord with Let me sort of bring this all to a close tonight by just suggesting a few practical pointers for increasing the good and pleasant unity of God to have in a local church. First, since we are to have this same mind among ourselves, the mind of Jesus Christ, that means that in part we will be more unified the more we seek to know Christ. We must receive the Savior, of course, but then we gain a more similar mind when we always seek to better know the promise. Unity will increase the more we are constantly studying His Word together, submitting our minds and our actions to the Word of God. We also, in order to need, uh, in order to maintain that unity, need what Paul was saying. We need humility. Haughtiness causes divisions. Humility We also need to be gentle and patient. But gentleness and patience doesn't mean we simply ignore each other's wrongs. The words themselves actually suggest that differences might arise, but that we must work together through them and do so by showing gentleness, gentleness and patience to others as we seek to direct each other towards the ways of Christ. 
And then finally, we also do well to love each other, to pray for each other, to show our concern for one another, to seek to be of help for one another when one is most in need, and to be willing to share with each other our time, our talents, and our dreams. I'm certain that's an the more unified we are, the more it will seem that in our unity, it will be just as if precious oil has been poured on the head, run down upon the earth, run down upon the columns, or like the dew of permit, which falls so far that it hits Mount Zion. And in our unity, then, we will sense all the more the commanded blessing of God that's found always Father,